Hi, this is Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon uh, Poison Center for uh, April 2009 Journal Club. We are talking about uh, the somewhat arcane topic of ectoparasites. For those of you who want that translated to stuff that you understand, it's we're talking about ticks and bed bugs and mites and a bunch of other things, some of which cause toxic problems, many of which cause infectious problems. And the entire reason this even came up at all, why we in the Poison Center should um, care, is there was what I'll describe as the incident in the hospital um, where someone was admitted and um, they didn't ask about his traveling companions. And unfortunately, he got transferred between about, oh, about seven or eight different wards and exposed several hundred people to his guests. And the whole place had to be closed down, scrubbed from top to bottom. The furniture had to be taken out and fumigated. And, um, and now there's a question when you come into the ER. They ask you, do you have any um, bugs at home? And what he had as a problem is with bed, bed bugs and sort of a little bit of overboard um, response to this single incident. But things like this do occur. And we'll start out with we'll talking about an article. I, I was amazed, first of all, that anybody would even address this in publication. But in this month's JAMA on April 1st, perhaps April Fool's Day joke on a 2009, is a lead article on bed bugs, bed bugs and clinical consequences of their bites written out of the pathology department in Mississippi State University, which may, may have more interest in this than others. But the bed bugs is Simex lentularius, and we will butcher all the Latin names here today for all these species, but that's the first one. It's been around for thousands of years. Um, and the reason it's become more important recently is, like everything else, uh, Darwin at work, they've become resistant to all the pesticides that we've been spraying on them to kill them. So there's been a increase in hospitals and dormitories and uh, hotel rooms of bites since about 1980. And the numbers on, on these have gone up um, quite a bit. Um, at a public health uh, hotline in Toronto, Ontario, they had a 100% increase in telephone complaints about bed bugs. Um, in 2002, there were similar increases in Germany and Australia. Um, so they've documented that these ectoparasites are around and they're going up. So what are they? They're uh, from the insect family Simicidiae. That contains what we commonly call bed bugs and other bugs are bat bugs and swallow bugs. They're found in temperate and tropical regions worldwide. There are actually 91 separate species of this group of insects that are wingless bugs that obligate hematophagous ectoparasites. That means they live on human beings and eat and their blood for nutrition. Uh, the word Simex is derived from the Roman designation for the bug. And... Uh, Basically, lenticularis means couch or bed. That's where you get them from. It's sitting on a couch. And in fact, this one individual here sat on a couch in the admitting area for a very long time. And everybody else who sat on that couch in admitting uh, may or may not have been exposed. But just the thought of it um, made everybody kind of itch. So as a word of caution, if you're listening to this tape while driving in your car, it's best advised to pull over if you need to uh, scratch at any time. Um, <laughs> So there's a variety of species out there. The adult bed bugs are oval-shaped and flat, and uh, they're about five millimeters in length, and they resemble unfed ticks. And the adults have a reddish-brownish color to them. Um, they have this pyramid-shaped head with this compound eyes, slender antenna, 
and this long proboscis, as many of these species that we'll talk about have, that's tucked underneath their head and thorax, and they have a blood meal. And when they have a blood meal, uh, it's unfortunate we don't have good photos to put on the tape. Well, a lot of these articles have interesting photos of these bugs, both engorged and disengorged, but they increase by almost 50% in weight, and they can uh, quite quite large. The bed bugs like warm things, and uh, they will, if set up in an environment, will find the warm host and warm-blooded things, which is usually humans, but some of these animals also seek uh, dogs and other pests. They don't like the light, they hide during the day, they feed at night, and they love little creases in the mattresses, box springs, headboards, and other places where they hide out and usually don't see them. Um, they have a lifespan of 6 to 12 months and can survive up to a year without feeding. And although not mentioned in this article, something I learned when I got put on the ad hoc committee for bed bugs for the hospital, was that they, in cold temperatures, they literally, like, decrease their metabolic rate to, like, zero. They're, like, barely alive. And if you try to, like, spray them down in a really cold environment, you may not kill them all because their metabolic rate may be really, really slow that they don't take in enough of pesticide to actually die. So you have to actually continue to apply the pesticide multiple times with these. So the proper way to deal with them is to uh, take your clothes out, wash them, and fumigate your furniture, clothing, suitcases, mattresses, and other personal professions. And one apartment or hotel room uh, may infest the entire building because they can kind of crawl through gaps in the walls and really set up a little epidemic of where they're at. So in order to make this article somewhat seem scientific, they went into their methods where they did a computer-assisted literature search is pretty much the motif we will see today. And besides that, they kind of stopped in their own backyard at the Entomology Reference Collection of the Mississippi Entomologic Museum at the Mississippi State University where these folks come from. So apparently there's lots of articles and resources just um, right there in uh, Mississippi. So they got all these articles, they read them over, and they tried to make some sense of some big points of these. They ended up with amazingly 75 citations that uh, identified 39 meant their inclusion criteria. Uh, many of them were review articles. But the key points are these. Transmission of more than 40 human diseases have been attributed to bed bugs, but there is actually, in fact, little evidence that any transmission ever occurs. Older literature has blamed literally every pestilent on these little critters, including plague, yellow fever, tuberculosis, relapsing fever, leprosy, filiariasis, leishmaniasis, cancer, smallpox, yellow fever, Chagas disease, HIV, and hepatitis B have all been at one point or another in some article blamed on bed bugs, all of which, in fact, is completely false. Now, the one that's kind of interesting is HIV virus can be detected in bed bugs up to eight days after ingestion of a high concentrated viremic blood meal from a patient. However, um, no virus has ever been detected in bed bug feces, and mechanical transmission of HIV has never been demonstrated, even when they've created artificial transmission models of bed bugs feeding on other animal models that would otherwise get HIV. Um, there's been the, the best candidate for any disease that may be attributed to bed bugs is hepatitis B. There's bed bugs in huts throughout many uh, parts of the world, Africa, Egypt, Senegal. Uh, hepatitis B surface antigen has been shown to persist in bed bugs for more than seven weeks after they feed on a host that has hepatitis B. 
it can actually uh, persist in their excrement up to six weeks, which is really the worry about transmission. And despite these findings, with a two-year effort to eradicate bed bugs in Gambia, the HBV, hepatitis B rates actually uh, remain the same. So getting rid of them doesn't seem to reduce the incidence of bed bugs. So other than that, there's no strong data to suggest that these bugs actually transmit any of these diseases. So what, what do they do is they're, they're responsible for bites and itching and cutaneous reactions. And the usual response to a bed bug appears to be really no reaction at all or a, a barely visible puncture bite on uh, whatever part they got you. Um, most people don't seek medical attention. If they do, it's for a, a two to five millimeter peritic macular papular erythematous lesions that with or without any treatment whatsoever usually resolves um, um, in and of itself. Um, now, some patients experience more complex cutaneous reactions. These include uh, peritic wheels, which uh, lo local urticaria around the central punctum, um, papular urticaria, and, a and some of them may even become bullous in nature. In nature. Um, some may become super-infected. They can get folliculitis. They can get cellulitis. Um, now, and so bringing in some interesting points of literature, um, there's always some guy who's willing to do this to get published. And Unzinger um, fed a colony of bed bugs on himself weekly. He just, uh, you know, hopefully he didn't go home at night. But uh, he stayed in the lab for seven uh, weekly for years and noticed his reactions and how they progressed from delayed to immediate hypersensitivity. And uh, it's probably separate from his work. They were able to identify salivary proteins that may play a role in the immunologic response, and they've identified these. The exact names are probably not uh, important, but nitroforin and some of these other factors were implicated. And uh, there has been a demonstrated IgE-specific reaction to nitroforin, one of these proteins. Um, as far as larger systemic reactions, there are a few studies of these, um, but um, things like asthma, general urticaria, anaphylaxis have been uh, cited in case reports. Um, and it's said not to be unusual. Uh, there's been one case of erythema multiforme, cases of angioedema, hypotension, and one case of a transient uh, acute ischemia that occurred as a result of uh, being bitten in a hotel room. Um, so be careful when you book online. <laughs> and so how do we treat these folks? Um, usually not much is, I mean, these bites are irritating, but they're not anything more than that. Really, there isn't any studies in this topical uh, over-the-counter prescription. Any pruritic medications are fine. Triamcinolone cream, they mentioned, although any one of the corticosteroids probably work. So I guess some of the other issues have to do with how do you prevent these and what sort of pest control. And that was one of the issues put to the ad hoc committee that I got put on. What should we do now that we know that there's somewhere in our midst lots of bed bugs? How do we educate the staff? How do we look for more of them? What do we do with the furniture? And so they talk about um, the, an eradication program should include proper identification of the species. So you need to bring in an entomologist who can actually look at them and say, yes, indeed, these are bed bugs, not something else. There are other little bugs like kissing bugs and assassin bugs that are different species that can bite you in your mattresses when you sleep. The biggest part was education of people so everybody wouldn't freak out and worry about, is my child going to die because I brought a bed bug home and, 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 and educate them. It's, it's an irritating thing, but not something that's um, dangerous. 
um, and then go through an inspection of the areas infected and then apply either chemical and non-chemical control measures. And in our case, they elected to um, remove all of the soft furniture to a separate fumigation site and more of the hard stuff, especially paper files and stuff like that, were individually sorted and fumigated. And, and, you know, the response to doing that is going to be case-by-case specific and what different uh, people uh, recommend. The actual drugs, the actual chemical that they used for it locally was Vicane, which is a Dow chemical, sulfuryl fluoride, which is a pretty potent fumigant. Um, so we had to do some education with, uh, in case people felt that after the couches and whatnot were perhaps returned, or if they were going to be returned with the reactions to the chemicals. And I think they actually decided to uh, discard most of the furniture and not have to deal with the second issue, which is not just the bed bug exposure, but the chemical exposure involved. So no insect repellents have been demonstrated conclusively to be infected. People have tried lemon oil and eucalyptus oil and sort of talk about that, but no one's ever done any studies. So their recommendation is when sleeping in hotels or other unfamiliar environments, a prudent approach for preventing bites is to check the premises for bed bugs or excreta. Here it is in JAMA telling you, check in, check it out, um, don't get bit. Um, mattresses, crevices, cords, box springs, all these places, don't buy anything in a garage sale that you're going to sleep on. I love that recommendation. Um, <laughs> So they're hard to eradicate once you get them. There are a variety of pesticides undergoing evaluation, but there haven't been studies on any of these um, in malaria control regions. Um, some of the things that are used, like impregnated bed nets, seem to help a little bit, but again, an area that's not much studied. Um, so the basic bottom line is if you find them, get rid of the stuff, your clothes, and um, get rid of uh, the furniture that are infected. You're pretty much stuck living uh, without those for a while, and the medical consequences is really more one of, of education than not. And, and to that end, uh, the JAMA, as they usually do with some of their lead articles, have made a one-page handout on the April 1st, uh, 2009 edition, so you can give your patients on what to expect if they're bitten by a bed bug, and a cute little uh, drawing of one as well um, for anyone who cares. Those are available at JAMA. Hands out copies for your patients. So if that doesn't have you itching just yet, and if you're listening to this in the car, we strongly recommend pulling over for this next segment. Mara is going to be talking about scabies and uh, particulosis pubis. I have two review articles. The first article um, is a review of scabies and particulosis uh, pubis, which is an infestation with pubic lice. And these are just two common causes of skin rash and pruritus um, worldwide. Um, and then a second article on uh, pediculosis, pediculosis um, corporis, which is um, also a cause of um, epidemic uh, typhus. So the first article uh, is broken up into two parts. The first part is about scabies, and it's giving a brief overview. It did a Medline and AIDSline search of the literature and abstracts from um, various meetings of the Infectious Disease Society and the International Society of Sexually Transmitted Diseases. So it starts with a discussion about the etiology and um, epidemiology of scabies. Um, it is a mite called Sarcoptes um, scabii, and it was identified in the early 1600s. Um, it's an obligate um, human parasite, and it lives in um, burrowed tunnels 
in the stratum corneum of the epidermis. It um, completes its entire life cycle on humans. The pregnant female lays 10 to 25 eggs in burrows up to a centimeter long and down to the um, stratum granulosum, which is about the middle part of the epidermis. The um, eggs hatch in three to four days and the larvae mature on the skin surface with a complete life cycle of 30 to 60 days. There's two modes of um, transmission. The first one is a direct skin-to-skin contact. An average host only has up to five to ten mites, but in uh, an extended uh, exposure you can have crested scabies where you can be infested with millions of mites, which would also increase the contagion uh, contagious nature. Um, the other mode of transmission is fomite transmission. Um, live mites have been found in dust samples, floors, furniture, and bedding, and they can survive up to three days um, after separation from their human host. The uh, burden of disease is endemic in tropical countries. There's some evidence that there might be a cyclic prevalence of about 30 years. Um, but also found in crowded living conditions, urban areas, um, higher in winter months, I guess uh, wearing more clothes, I'm not sure, um, disproportionately affects women and children. And then you can see epidemic outbreaks in hospitals, nursing homes, and long-term care facilities. Uh, in addition, there's certain populations that have an increased risk for developing um, the severe or the crested or hyperkeratotic um, scabies. It was first seen in um, leprosy patients, but now it can be seen in organ transplantation patients, um, patients with mental retardation, severe physical handicap, HIV infection, um, and uh, aboriginal um, cultures, especially in rural Australia. So the clinical manifestations of um, scabies, after your initial infection, the symptoms can take several weeks to develop, and usually people will consist of a complaint of which is um, more severe at night, and then um, some characteristic skin lesions that could be found in the interdigital space, so flexor surfaces of the wrist, um, armpit, waist, feet, and ankles, and then sometimes areas around the nipples in women and around the scrotum and penis in men. With that characteristic lesion of a burrow, um, which is just like an elevated track, 1 to 10 millimeters. You can also have some other lesions like papules or blisters, or nodules. In the crested scabies, um, the lesions are more um, psoriasis form or warty, and sometimes you can have pruritus, sometimes not. And in a recurrence case of regular scabies, you may not notice, oh, actually you'll have pruritus or itching a lot sooner, maybe within 24 hours. There's a couple complications with an infestation of scabies. Um, especially in the crested form, um, you can have uh, it can have pain on movement or significant breakdown, which could also progress to a secondary sepsis. Um, and there's been just a few case reports of oligocytoclastic vasculitis. The diagnosis, there's two different ways. There's a presumptive diagnosis with uh, pruritus, especially worse at night, and then these skin lesions. Um, the more definite diagnosis can be done with microscopic identification when you do scraping at the side of the burrow. And then there's some other fancy ways like video dermatoscopy or epiluminescence microscopy, but usually, you know, your clinics won't have that kind of... Uh, <laughs> which uh, the studies showed they're all similar in results, so the scraping is just, just as, as fine. So 
treatment, the CDC recommends um, permethrin, 5% cream applied to the whole body from the neck down that is washed off 8 to 14 hours later, or a Lindane 1% lotion, which is similar instructions to the permethrin, but a little bit more side effects, or um, oral ivermectin, um, 20 micrograms per kilogram orally, two doses separated uh, two weeks apart, but um, it's not an FDA-approved indication for use. They had some, not a whole lot of uh, studies just based on, oh wait, no, this is Gates, sorry. There are a couple um, uh, studies that they they showed, you know, the, the um, dosing that I just talked about. But there was a study um, done on HIV patients with the crested scabies showing that um, None were cured with a single treatment of one drug, but when there was a combination treatment, especially of um, benzoate benzo and ivermectin, that um, they did have a cure. So kind of indicating that you might need to um, do a couple of uh, different treatments for the more complicated um, cases. Uh, let's see. Okay, and then, so that's to kill the... Um, the mites, but um, you also have to going to deal with the um, contaminated items. There's been no formal randomized studies addressing the appropriate management of that, but most experts recommend um, you should treat all close contacts and housemates with medication, and for all bedding and towels and clothing, they should be warmed in, uh, washed in warm hot water. If they can't be washed, to be isolated from use for at least three days. There is really no optimum, optimum management or treatment for scabies in an epidemic population. There is some studies showing um, you could do community-wide treatment with permethrin or um, single-dose ivermectin, ivermectin, which can show you know decrease in prevalence. But there's no studies um, showing long-term impact or economic feasibility. For um, epidemic scabies in long-term care facilities, there's been some good, um, a study showing some good control with one to two doses of ivermectin. Uh, just a little bit of treatment toxicity talked about in this article, um, rash, diarrhea, especially with permethrin. Um, aplastic anemia has been noted in lindane. Um, and then if you, with lindane as well, if you... Uh, use warm baths or, or if you have extensive dermatitis. In addition to scabies, you can um, have uh, increased system, systemic absorption and then not to use uh, lending if uh, a patient is pregnant, lactating, or less than two years old or has the extensive dermatitis. Um, for ivermectin, the most frequently noted um, side effect was abdominal pain and vomiting. Can have rash and increase in itching over the first three days of treatment, um, and then persistent sim persistent symptoms. Um, when treating your patients, you should tell them that the rash and itching may present up to two weeks after treatment. But after two weeks, um, some of the reasons the, the uh, symptoms might have, or that they think the treatment might have failed, was maybe uh, due to faulty application of the topical. Uh, scabicides or reinfection by improper treating of the bed clothing and the linen. Um, close contacts weren't treated. Um, for crested scabies, you just have poor penetration on thick scaly uh, skin. There has been some resistance to lindane 
noted. And uh, it's interesting, they've shown some cross-reactivity between scabies and the household mite antigen. Um, so scabies patients had increased IgE to house mite antigen, so there might be some cross-reactivity. The second part of this article talked about a pediculosis pubis, which is an uh, infant infestation with um, pubic lice. Um, again, uh, the same format. It talks about etiology and epidemiology first. The um, lice, um, which um, are blood-sucking insects, which have no free-living life cycle, they can infect the head, the body, or pubic region, but they're different um, varieties. The pubic region, the one that we're talking about, is the therus pubis. And this um, lice is one to three, uh, this louse, pardon me, this louse is one to three millimeters long with three pairs of legs. The adult female lays up to 300 eggs that adhere to the, the hair at the skin hair junction. The eggs and the nits hatch um, in six to ten days, and they mature within um, ten days. And the life cycle is about one to three months. They uh, infest the hair in the pubic area, but sometimes can be seen in areas of others, uh, densely, uh, areas of dense uh, body hair. And the transmission, really only one way uh, is the direct intimate contact. Fomite transmission is unlikely to play a role in um, this kind of infection. So the most common symptom is um, itching as well. You may see blue macules at the feeding site. Diagnosis is by um, ID of the visual opulescent mixer live eyes. And also stating that all positive patients should have a thorough investigation for other um, sexually transmitted diseases. The CDC recommends, um, again, permethrin 1% cream applied to the um, affected area washed off after 10 minutes. Uh, Lindane 1% shampoo or pyrethrins um, with piperonal butoxide shampoo. There's a couple other treatment. What Ali's noted, um, malathion, carbaryl, and um, phenothrin. Some patients may require two applications, three to seven days after the initial treatment. Again, all the bedding and towels and clothes should be washed. Um, avoid contact with sexual partners until they've been evaluated. And sometimes you can get infestation of your eyelashes where you would want to put Vaseline on twice a day for 10 days instead of those other kind of medication. Um, there's been no treatment trials published for this kind of lice since 1996. Um, <laughs> But there have been five for um, head lice, and really what was just significant here was that there's a possible emergence of drug-resistant um, head lice in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, but so far, there's been no documented significant treatment failure in the management of pubic. So Yeah, so it's a good little rundown on things we try not to think about too much. But uh, as far as a toxicologic perspective, I mean, these agents that we're putting on you are, of course, pesticides, permethrins and pyrethrins and lindane, which is quell. The important point is we should not be using quell as a first-line agent in, in children um, or women. And it talks about the stronger, per, uh, you know, third and fourth generation pyrethrins like delta methrin is being investigated as uh, a new agent for lice. So there's some toxicologic uh, downstream effect from understanding how we treat these and uh, making sure we give the right insect topical insecticide that we use for spraying and killing ants for, uh, in our house on our children and make sure we're doing them the right dose and the right amount. Remember for pubic lice, it's a single application, but for scabies, two applications are necessary. 
um, and ivermectin, of course, is what's in dog heartworm pills, um, another uh, pesticide agent. So one of the diseases that is transmitted by the body louse is epidemic typhus. Thankfully, we don't see that much anymore, and so that may be the new thing. If we use Rocky and Bullwinkle fans, it's been attributed to the flying squirrel in the United States. So to bring us up to date, uh, again, That's tomorrow awesome. on epidemic typhus. Okay, this was a uh, review article in the uh, Feminine Lancet Infectious Disease, and it just shows the many aspects of um, epidemic typhus from the history to the treatment. And they searched PubMed, major textbooks, articles, and um, articles from prominent scientists in the field. So just a, a quick introduction. Um, epidemic typhus is transmitted to humans by body lice, the pediculosis humanus corporis, and the causal agent is rickettsia prowazekii, a gram-negative bac uh, bacteria. Um, typhus is uh, derived from the Greek word Tufos, which is uh, translated as smoke or hazy, and it just uh, kind of describes the delirium commonly seen with epidemic typhus. They have a nice long section on the natural history and epidemiology. Uh, the history was unclear. They uh, think possibly epidemic typhus was back even to the Athens plague or maybe in Spain and uh, 1083. Um, they do know it was widespread in Italy in the 16th century, and it was uh, there was a book on typhus called The Infection of Military Camps, and it followed the armies through Europe, decreasing their numbers, and the survivors spread it to the civilians. It's been confused with typhoid fever, which um, the causal agent for that is Salmonella typhi. Until the 18th century, they um, kind of discovered that ep epidemic typhus uh, could be separated from typhoid by the existence of a rash and then pathological findings that there's no ulceration in payers' patches, which there is in um, typhoid patients. And then in 1909, it was determined that uh, body lice were, um, had a role in the transmission of uh, epidemic typhus. So it's been responsible for massive mortality in wake of wars, famines, and migrations, um, notable in the the Napoleonic Wars, 20% of the troops died, likely from epidemic typhus. A reemergence in World War I, um, 25 million cases with 3 million deaths in Eastern Europe and Russia. The last reported outbreak in the United States was in 1922, but there was a reemergence in, uh, during World War II in North Africa, South, um, Southern Italy, Central and Eastern Europe, and terrible outbreaks in the concentration camps. Uh, since the end of World War II, there was a, a slow decline, sporadic cases in Burundi, um, outbreaks in Uganda, Rwanda. In 1980s, there were no causes cases reported in Eastern um, Europe or Africa. And they thought uh, from the 80s to 1997, they suspected that it was only prevalent um, in Ethiopia. But since 1997... Um, Epidemic typhus has uh, dramatically reemerged, especially in conditions of um, hygiene is compromised during uh, winter and spring. So uh, the Civil War in Burundi, it states that there was 100,000 infected with a fatality rate of 15%, and some other um, uh, outbreaks in Central and South America and small outbreaks in Russian Peru. There was a discovery of a recrudescent form of epidemic typhus in New York in 18. 
96, which has been named uh, Brill-Zenzer disease, where um, a rickettsia Brill-Zenzer infection can be re reactivated under um, stress conditions or waning immune system um, years or decades later after a primary infection. Additionally, epidemic typhus um, is currently considered a potential bioterrorism agent, Category B, and it was tested as a bioweapon by the former Soviet Union in 1930s. It's um, stable in dried louse feces, which can cause, an, you, know, you could use a aerosol inhalation infection. So the transmission uh, begins with... Um, body lice uh, infected by uh, the rickettsia bacteria. The um, body lice uh, are strictly bud, blood uh, suckers. They'll feed five times a day, and they'll deposit their infected feces near a bite lesion, um, causing uh, you know, the bacteria to enter the bloodstream. Um, additionally, and then so it can be transmitted by uh, close physical contact between hosts. In fact, it has been shown that Lice has a tendency to desert the febrile host to seek new healthy hosts. But there's also transmission from um, aerosolized fecal dust. It's uh, uh, bacteria can remain viable for 100 days in uh, lice feces. Um, additionally, it was interesting that the feces that the lice uh, put on down on the skin have an increased amount of ammonium, so they attract other lice that way. Um, but lice isn't required in the recrudescent infection. Um, uh, as Dr. Horwitz said, there is the um, extra human reservoir of the uh, wild flying squirrel on the east coast of the United States, and that seems to be the only other um, confined um, extra human reservoir other than the um, body lice. So quickly, uh, just the role of the pathophysiology of what's happening with this kind of infection, the rickettsia uh, Bacteria enters the body from the contamination of the skin bite, and it's, the bacteria spreads to the bloodstream and attaches to endothelial cells of small capillary beds in the brain, skin, lungs, heart, and other organs, and they multiply. They um, have, cause a mechanical lysis of the host cell membrane, causing um, the bacteria to release into surrounding tissue, causing a widespread vasculitis and uh, possible dysfunction. So that kind of uh, describes what's going to happen clinically um, the first couple days, one to three days um, after uh, incubation, which is 10 to 14 days, you'll have some malaise. And then a, an abrupt onset of high fever, 30 to 40 degrees Celsius, and severe headaches. Other symptoms can include abdominal pain, um, severe myalgias, cough, and then a rash, which is uh, states it's only in 20 to 40 percent of patients um, secondary to this vasculitis. As well, um, you can have CNS manifestations up to 80%, including meningeal irritation, seizures, delirium, confusion, drowsiness, and hearing loss. The vasculitis can cause um, cerebral thrombosis or shock, um, ischemia, gangrene, and uh, necrosis. In the uh, lab studies, 40% uh, of the time you'll see thrombocytopenia, Increased um, liver function uh, tests in 63%, hyperbilirubinemia in 20%, and increase in BUN in around 30%. Um, the mortality is 
mortality rates are variable. Um, before antibiotics, it was up to 60%, but with the correct antibiotics, it's down to 4%, but increased mortality in um, age 60 years and older. In the um, recrudescent form of the brill zinsser disease, uh, the, um, the bacteria isn't eradicated at the end of the disease, and the infection persists undetected for years. You can have increased IgG, um, but no specific IgM. Um, short dura- shortened duration, similar but milder symptoms, but it still can be um, fatal. So the diagnosis, uh, there's two methods, suggestive di- diagnosis and a severe outbreak of unexplained fever in unhygienic um, environments, civil wars, jails, or in chronically poor and cold countries, or a microbiological um, diagnosis done with um, serology. They had some old agglutination reaction tests, but now um, culture and PCA um, assays to target um, genes specific for rickettsia. Treatment, um, early antibiotics in suspected cases before confirmation of um, diagnosis is important. Um, Single dose of 20 milligrams oral doxycycline or um, five-day treatment of uh, petrocycline or chlorophyll-nicol. Um, failure to show response within 48 to 72 hours kind of indicates that the uh, epidemic typhus isn't present. Um, in addition to treatment, you need to control um, and prevent louse infestation from delousing by bathing, boiling infected clothing or clothing uh, for, uh, for over a week, <laughs> the infected clothes and eradicating rice, a lice with insecticides, um, malathion and acromethrin. Uh, prevention, um, there has been various attempts at um, vaccines, uh, starting with ingestion of infected lice, started uh, cited as the earliest pre- um, preventative measures, but the effects were undocumented. There was a um, vaccine in Poland in 1920, uh, first inactivated vaccine, but it involved intrarectally, intrarectally um, inoculating the lice, so it was difficult to produce and standardize. Um, <laughs> there was an attenuated vaccine in 1939, but it was uh, too reactive. 1950s, there was an attenuated Madrid E strain, um, but there were some some uh, cases where the uh, it, there was an aver- a reversion of the attenuated strain to a more virulent uh, phenotype. So um, even up to the 70s, they had um, vaccines being developed, but just a lot of undesirable effects. So presently, it seems like there's a limited market for vaccines, and the efficacy of antibiotics um, restrict the potential for vaccine research, although there may be promising DNA vaccines in the future. All right, great, great summary of, uh, thankfully, a disease that has disappeared. I think it's an interesting footnote to know that both rickets, for which rickettsia is named, and uh, von Proazek, for which rickettsia proazeki is named, both died of epidemic typhus, and that prompted, I think, the initial uh, search for vaccines with them, as noted in the article. Um, as far as the thing that really eradicated them was not so much uh, the proper treatment with antibiotics was support once you get it, but the massive delousing programs that occurred both after World War II uh, in refugee populations and then uh, persisted in many countries 
Um, for many travelers, I was um, once deloused. You know, I didn't have lice. Everyone on the plane who landed in this particular country, which I go nameless, uh, was sprayed on the plane with DDT before they were allowed to disembark. Um, and I assume that kept their type of uh, incidence very low in that country, at least at the time. Um, so it still goes on. And, you know, the fact DDT, as much as we have bashed it over the years for everything that's done from Silent Spring and, uh, and onward, um, it was really the first strong pesticide that actually helped eliminate these very severe uh, human diseases that were, were out there. So to change gears a little bit to something more toxicologic-based and a whole lot more fun, uh, sticking, uh, changing uh, ectoparasites a little bit to ticks, which we'll finish up on in the next several articles. Uh, we have Carly uh, talking about tick paralysis. Thank you. Perhaps a more tasteful subject here. So I have a review article uh, on tick paralysis from the Medical Clinics of North America, published in 2002. Um, so tick paralysis, it's a clinical syndrome. It's characterized by a prodrome of gait instability, and then you get a flaccid ascending motor weakness and paralysis. And it results from the neurotoxin of certain female ticks. Um, of note, your sensory function is spared. Um, it can progress in severe cases to involve the respiratory muscles, and you can end up with respiratory failure with this. So in North America, we see it in the Rocky Mountain region in the western United States, and in Canada, it's been reported in British Columbia and Alberta, and it's also quite well described in Australia. So there are several ticks of medical importance. There's two families. Um, the first is Argosaceae, and those are the soft ticks, and then there's Ixidiae, and those are the hard ticks. Um, so in North America, we see tick paralysis from several species. Uh, the first is Dermatocenter. The second is Amblyoma, which is also known as the Lone Star Tick. Um, D. variabilis is the common dog tick, and D. andersoni is the wood tick. In Australia, you see hard ticks cause, that cause tick paralysis, and the species most commonly responsible is I. holocyclus. And this um, tick is actually believed to be the tick that has the most potent neurotoxin in the world. So Those Aussies are always claiming they're the most <laughs> More to follow. So tick paralysis was actually first reported in Australia in 1824. And there's a diary by the explorer by the name of Hubble. And he writes in his, about his voyage to Port Philip Bay in Melbourne, and he says he noted a tick which buried itself in the flesh and would end, and would in the end destroy man or beast if not removed in time. So in North America, the first reports of the tick um, of, of tick paralysis were in 1912 in British Columbia and in Oregon, in fact. Woo. So. The toxin that we think produces the disease is secreted in the saliva of the mature female tick. Um, it usually happens in the spring or summer months, not surprisingly. Um, and children between the ages of one and five are most commonly affected. Um, there's only a few case series uh, on paralysis in the medical literature, and they're mostly from North America and Australia. Um, and, um, so we'll, we're going to talk about now the clinical presentation. 
Um, so we'll start with in North America. Usually you, you start off with some vague complaints like restlessness, irritability, fatigue, muscle pain, and this usually starts days after the tick actually attaches to the person. And then if the tick is not removed at this point, you progress to get an unsteady gait, and then the aforementioned ascending flaccid paralysis, you lose your deep tendon reflexes. And then if you still don't remove the tick, then the paralysis can progress to involve the cranial nerves um, and the respiratory muscles, as we talked about. So mortality actually occurs in 10% of patients uh, and is a result of respiratory paralysis, and this is in North America. So in Australia, um, where we discussed the most common tick was the eye uh, holocyclus. So they can have more prolonged symptoms and usually have a similar prodrome to that which we saw in North America or uh, with the North American ticks. So they, they then get the unsteadiness of gait. Um, the ascending paralysis can take days to fully develop. And the difference here is that after you remove the tick, it can take up to 48 hours um, for the paralysis to still reach its maximum. So even if you remove the tick, you might see symptoms continue to progress. In North American ticks, we usually see recovery or at least the beginnings of recovery within an hour of the tick removal. So, um, and after the tick is removed, usually eventually you see recovery, um, but sometimes it's slow. So the toxin, um, is, as I said, in the saliva of the female tick. The exact mechanism is not known, but it is known that it works by acting on presynaptic motor nerve terminals and inhibiting the release of acetylcholine, and that it is temperature dependent. So there have been several studies, and uh, this is what they've come up with in terms of the mechanism of the toxin. So differential diagnosis for somebody with tick paralysis includes Guillain-Barre syndrome, acute cerebellar ataxia, uh, poliomyelitis, botulism, myasthenia gravis, electrolyte um, disorders, periodic paralysis, diphtheria, heavy metal intoxication, uh, insecticide poisoning, porphyria, solvent inhalation such as glue sniffing as well as hysterical paralysis. Um, and so the clinical differentiation of tick paralysis from these other entities is important because obviously their treatments are different. When you have tick paralysis, you're going to want to remove the tick. When you have these other entities, you're going to need to treat them differently. So uh, it's stated in the article that a clinical diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome should not be considered until a physician has made a careful search of the scalp, axilla, and perineum looking for an engorged tick, um, which makes sense since this is a reversible cause of paralysis. Um, and there's a couple of cases referenced uh, where this occurred in the hospital. Um, so other differences between Guillain-Barre syndrome and tick paralysis 
Guillain-Barre is usually a slower developing entity, so it can take <laughs> up to four weeks to progress the paralysis, whereas um, the tick paralysis usually occurs within hours to days. Um, uh, other entities on the differential diagnosis, um, polio, which is usually associated with travel to places where polio is endemic and associated with fever, meningismus, and an asymmetric weakness. Um, acute lesions of the spinal cord usually have a sensory involvement as well as uh, weakness, and you can also see urinary tension and bowel incontinence. Um, botulism uh, usually presents as a descending paralysis involving the cranial nerves first and um, other entities on the differential diagnosis such as electrolyte abnormalities. Um, you'd obviously need to do the appropriate lab testing. So treatment um, is removal of the tick as we discussed and the way to do this is to grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible and remove it with a uh, steady pressure. Um, there was an antitoxin, which is a serum that was initially prepared from dogs, first used in 1935, and it's used in treating animals, but in humans, um, there's a risk of acute reactions and serum sickness, so we rely mainly on supportive therapy. And that's all. All right, yeah, a good summary for something that I think if you can occasionally be a hero at uh, poison center gets called. They're thinking it's botulism, or they're thinking it's Guillain-Barre, and you say, hmm, in the middle of the summer, the kid is outside. He's um, maybe we ought to look for a tick and uh, pull it off. And, and again, the important part is they grab the whole tick and gently pull back, and all these other tricks and home remedies like <laughs> hot lighted matches or cigarettes to the ticks. Um, the backside usually just makes them regurgitate more of their blood meal back into you and causes more problems. And uh, so, uh, again, it's gentle pressure with removing ticks, something which is a good emergency medicine skill to acquire. Not on your, it's good. So what else do we worry about with ticks and uh, the uh, effects of uh, Dr. Ricketts and all his research? So we'll talk a little bit about something. Uh, which is off on every single uh, t test in emergency medicine, probably elsewhere. They love ask, talking about Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which, of course, is not in the Rocky Mountains anymore. So, Mark, we'll start off with uh, that article. So, this is an article by Buckingham, and the title is Clinical and Laboratory Features, Hospital Course, and Outcomes of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And actually, the, uh, the tick vector for this is the same as Carly was describing, so it's another thing to look out for. The vector is the American dog tick in the eastern United States and a Rocky Mountain wood tick in the western United States. So the objective of this study was to describe the demographic lab and clinical findings on admission in children and to describe the hospital course, complications, and outcomes, and then they worked to try and identify some of the clinical findings or characteristics of patients that would uh, be independently associated with poor outcomes in these patients. So they defined poor outcomes as being either death or discharge with severe neurologic dysfunctions. Uh, but before that, a little bit of brief background on Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It's a potentially life-threatening tick-borne infection caused by intracellular gram-negative coxobacillus. Uh, it's called Rickettsia rickettsii, and it's endemic to most of the Western Hemisphere and the continental United States. 
The peak incidence is in kids between five and nine years old, uh, but most of the data on this disease comes from kids back in the 1970s. So they set out to try and look at some more recent data and see if there were any new findings on this. So the study design was a retrospective chart review where they had six sites and they reviewed hospital databases uh, based on ICD-9 codes for rickettsiosis. They also took a look at lab data as well as the PEDS ID consult service data. And their inclusion criteria were patients under 18 years old uh, who were treated with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever between January 1990 and December of 2002. And they had six institutions in the southeast, south-central United States. And these kids needed to meet the criteria for confirmed or probable Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And from that, they came up with 92 patients. And as I talked about before, they defined their adverse outcome as either death or discharge with functionally significant neurologic deficit. So they used a multiple logistic regression to identify the variables that were independently associated with these poor outcomes. Um, at baseline, they came up with 92 subjects. 37% of these had confirmed Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and another 63% only had probable Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. They were 47% male, and the average age was 5.8 years old, and 49% of these patients reported a tick bite. The average days to symptom onset was six days, and interestingly, 86% of these kids had seen a healthcare provider before the diagnosis was made. And uh, as described before, 90% of these cases happened between April 1st and August 31st. So a summary of the primary outcome data. Um, so four children in the study group died, and two were treated actually for strep infections before they were admitted, and 13 children were discharged with functional neurologic deficits. So that made up 19% of the patients they saw that met their primary outcome of death or neurologic dysfunction. And then the clinical and lab characteristics of the other patients. Um, so Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever has this classic triad of fever, rash, and headache. And that was only found in 58% of the patients in their study group. And 98% had some kind of fever. 97% had some kind of rash. And only 45% had the combination of fever, rash, and a history of tick bite. Uh, some lab data, the only lab abnormality they came up with was 59% of patients had platelets less than 150, and 6% of patients, or 6 patients, I'm sorry, had platelets less than 30. And then, as I talked about before, most patients were seen by a healthcare provider before admission, and only four of those were given an appropriate antibiotic on their first healthcare visit. So the course and outcome... Uh, most of these patients were brought to medical care after two days, but didn't receive treatment until seven days. And patients who sought care later on in their disease were actually treated earlier. So that kind of implies that the, you know, the beginning manifestations of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever are so general that patients who actually presented later and had a more kind of classical course uh, got treated. And an illness outside the peak months completes other complaints other than fever, rash, or headache, or early presentation all delayed the diagnosis and treatment. 89% um, of these patients were hospitalized, 36% went to the ICU, and 16% ended up on a vent. So they came up with some predictors of poor outcomes, and because all of the patients with bad outcome had altered mental status and required ICU care, they had an undefined ratio for a predictor. So the three things they came up with were kids that presented with a coma, uh, required ionotropic support or required IV fluid boluses were predictors of poor outcomes. Um, and because their sample size is pretty small here, they had some really wide confidence intervals for 
all of those things. Um, if a kid had two out of three of those findings, it was 81% sensitive and 97% specific for a poor outcome. And they came up with the conclusion that the median days from symptoms onset to therapy did not differ between patients with uh, good outcomes and poor outcomes. So a brief summary of the author's main discussion points. 90% uh, of these cases occurred between April and September, and less than 50% reported a tick bite. Uh, nearly all the patients had a rash, and most involved the palms and soles, and occurred after one day. The classic finding of headache, fever, and rash was present in less than two-thirds of patients, and laboratory findings were nonspecific. Uh, delays occurred most in patients' care due to failure to seek medical attention and early misdiagnosis. And a lot of clinicians failed to, rep to recognize and treat Rocky Mountain spotted fever early in the course. And even though this study found that the difference in outcome based on uh, when treatment was started uh, didn't affect outcome, there has been some other good studies that show that early treatment is clearly linked to a decreased mortality. So their conclusions were to start treatment early with doxycycline if you're considering Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and especially think about this during spring and summer months in areas that are endemic for the disease. So some of the strengths of the study were a large sample. Um, some of the limitations were that the serologic, serologic testing for Rocky Mountain spotted fever isn't perfect. So some kids could have been missed or only 12% have a positive titer uh, without infection. So they could be cross-reactivity with other rickettsia species as well. Right. Yeah, a good, good summary of Rocky Mountain spotted fever is something we see um, over and over again in our tests, and certainly, <coughs> although more of it is in the south, uh, east of the country than the Rocky Mountains, um, it does show up, and the unfortunate uh, thing that occurs over and over again when you read many of these articles is the delay to recognition theme, which is a good reason why we keep harping on early recognition of a rash on the wrists and palms and fever in a child to make the diagnosis early on and then treat them with the antibiotic that we usually don't treat for typical earaches and sore throats with, which is doxycycline or tetracycline, both of which has some hesitancy to give to children because of dental staining, but really these are the drugs of choice for these uh, diseases which still carry a pretty significant mortality rate, even uh, nowadays of 10%. And obviously if you wait till the time you come back with shock or coma or needing resuscitation, um, those are all findings that increase uh, the risk for a really, really bad outcome. Um, and again, the same ticks um, that were involved before, the dog tick and the Lone Star tick, I think, are uh, the big ones that we see over and over again. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have good pictures to show, but they're in the articles. So the other disease that comes up often is, when we're talking about tick bites, is Lyme disease. And, you know, the kind of the thing you always get curbsided for is, like, someone says, come over and take a look at this rash. What do you think this is? So I love articles that start with a question as a title. So this one is called, Does This Patient Have Erythema Migrants? So this is a, a rational clinical exam article that was published in JAMA in 2007. And it is kind of structured like a lot of these where it starts out with a review type of article and then goes into a question based on a clinical scenario. So the clinical scenario is a case vignette of a 22-year-old male with a rash on the shoulder, three days old, that's increasing in size, flat, oval, and homogenous, with erythema, 14 centimeters long, with no history of tick bite. And the question is, would you treat this patient without testing them further? So some brief background on Lyme disease. It was first 
discovered in 1908 by the Swedish dermatologist uh, who described some expanding erythema and thought this could be linked to the sheep tick. And then later it was really described uh, with a cluster of Lyme arthritis in the 1970s, and someone went and investigated this statistically improbable cluster of what had been kind of diagnosed as early juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in Lyme, Connecticut, and found that this actually wasn't juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, but was due to this novel bacterium of the Borrelia species. So since then, erythema migrans has been pathognomonic for Lyme disease. And this was really called into question more recently when there has been an outbreak in non-endemic areas of erythema migrans, most most in the southeast. Uh, And a new tick vector has been discovered, the Amblyomia americanum, and so this new entity has been termed the Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, or STARI, uh, also known as Master's Disease, and has also been treated with antibiotics, but uh, has not been caused by the Borrelia species, but also caused by a tick vector. So Table 1 of this article describes the types of tick vectors and the causative spirochetes that go along with those. And in the northwest, we have the Iotes pacificus, and it has the Borrelia Burgdorferi species, and the rash that goes along with this often has less central clearing than other rashes seen in Europe and other parts of the country, and patients usually have more of the systemic symptoms that go along with Lyme disease. Uh, Table 2 of this article goes on to discuss the diagnostic mimickers of erythema migrans, and one of these that I found interesting was the hypersensitivity reaction that you can actually get from a tick bite but will come on within hours and not within days like the erythema migrans of Lyme disease. Uh, the next section of the article goes on to talk about the anatomic, physiologic, and epidemiologic considerations associated with making the diagnosis of erythema migrans. So the bacteria actually migrates from the midgut of the tick to the salivary glands. So that means that an attachment of the tick of less than 24 hours very rarely results in infection. And most of these infections happen in the northeast um, area, in areas of Wisconsin, and it's estimated that less than 10% of these cases are reported. So the question is, why is the clinical exam so important in diagnosing erythema migrans and Lyme disease? And there's a couple good reasons for that. Uh, serologic testing is falsely negative in about half the cases of presentation, and then isolation of the bacteria from the actual erythema migrans rash uh, by PCR is variable, and between 36 and 88% sensitive. Culture is expensive, time-consuming, and only good in patients who have not been treated previously. So the CDC has some um, kind of recommendations for diagnosis of erythema migrans, but these are really meant to only be used for surveillance and epidemiology and not to guide individual clinical decisions. But the CDC says a skin lesion that begins as a red macule or papule expands over days to weeks to a round lesion with central clearing greater than 5 centimeters in size. Uh, should be considered for erythema migrans. And so the standard of care has really remained physician impression of the classic rash, and this occurs for the southern tick-associated rash illness and Lyme disease. And this is important because early treatment of Lyme disease results in a cure rate of more than 90%, whereas untreated patients, 5 to 8% can go on to develop cardiac manifestations, 15 to 20% neurologic problems, and 40 to 60% arthritis. So... The diagnosis of erythema migrams based on history and physical exam is uh, really important to guide your treatment. Uh, The next section is on eliciting signs and symptoms. So 
They really stress the history, the patient's history, the rash, exposure, geography, and the time of year are the most important parts of diagnosing this rash. And most patients will not recall the actual tick bite itself. The incubation period is 7 to 14 days, and evolution is a progressive slow growth over days. Uh, the systemic symptoms include fevers, arthralgias, stiffness, headache, and myalgias. And the majority of erythema migraines endemic in North America are homogenous in color and pattern. And the central clearing that's often reported is more of a function of the duration of a rash. So if you catch it early, it's less likely to have the, the central clearing that's described often in textbooks. And these often occur in areas where ticks feed, so you want to check the flex areas, the hairline, and multiple skin lesions are possible due to hematogenous dissemination. And after starting treatment, up to 15% of these patients can have a Jerex-Herxheimer reaction, which is a transient worsening of the rash with flu-like symptoms secondary to cytokine release. So the study that these, this group did was a Medline search of all the English language articles between 1966 and 2007 for erythema migraines and erythema chronicum migraines. And they included all the studies that had at least 15 consecutively enrolled patients and that included data on the history and physical exam characteristics. Um, out of these, none of the studies they found reported specificity, only sensitivity, because all these patients only included patients with erythema migraines. They found 1,266 articles, 185 of these um, articles were reviewed, and out of those, they kept 53. And out of those 53, 32 articles were from Europe, 20 were from the U.S., and one included data from Europe and the U.S. Uh, this combined for 5,702 total patients. So they took the 10 largest studies for each history and physical exam variable and pooled that data and analyzed it to see what they could come up with. So the results were that systemic symptoms occurred in more than half of patients uh, with a 65% sensitivity. And most of the lesions were solitary, 81% of the lesions. And central clearing is uncommon in U.S. patients with Lyme disease and occurred in only 19% of patients in endemic areas, but were much more common in European patients. And the STARI, the Southern Tick Associated Rash Illness, out of those patients, 89% recalled the bite, and 80% of those lesions had central clearing. So it is a little bit different than the Lyme disease. So the clinical bottom line they came up with were there were no prospective studies or standardized criteria on this topic. Uh, no single component of the, of the history or physical exam makes a diagnosis of erythema migrans highly likely. And there was no data really on the combination of findings to make a diagnosis. And the criteria against which to compare physical exam findings was a little bit shaky just because the culture and other uh, gold standard really isn't there. So they stressed that the morphology can vary, but uh, it requires an integration of the history, physical, and epidemiological context. And if you're concerned, you can re-examine the patient in 48 to 72 hours. And if the rash is continuing to expand, it's more likely erythema migraines. So Lyme endemic areas with a solitary lesion of appropriate size and morphology and systemic symptoms with a history of a tick bite um, is pretty straightforward for the diagnosis of Lyme disease. But the clinical presentation is variable, so multiple factors need to be factored into your decision-making. Yeah, again, it's important to recognize, in this case, not 
necessarily patients who are febrile, but certainly these rashes in the right endemic areas, either the Lyme disease in the northeast or the STARI, the new entity that's been described in the southeast, uh, and treat them appropriately with an antibiotic. Again, we don't choose very often, but it's specific for the rickettsiae, which is uh, the tetracycline or doxycycline. And it's easy to see, looking through some of these photos that are available either on the internet or some of these articles, is many of these can be easily mistaken for cellulitis and get a staph or strep drug or erysipelas on the face, wow. especially in children, and get a, stress, a drug for strep. And again, the delay to diagnosis or the complete misdiagnosis can lead to some of the secondary complications with Lyme disease, in this case, carditis and um, some of the long-term chronic arthritis problems that can occur. So if you see rashes for all of these in summertime, think about using uh, tetracyclines for that. To kind of round out our group of topics, perhaps the most arcane group of uh, rickettsii come from the genera Elickii and the newly named um, uh, species Anaplasma. And since we talked about tick bites a few years ago, the HGE hasn't been named HGA, and to clear all that up for you uh, is Pat. Hey, all right. So we're going to go through a, uh, an article from 2006 New York Academy of Sciences um, by Bakken and Gumler, uh, Clinical Diagnosis and Treatment of Human Granulocytic Anaplasmosis. Um, and this is basically kind of a descriptive article of HGA and kind of what you can, where, where it came from, what you can expect in the future, and uh, what to do with it. Um, so, I, and uh, some interesting, I will have some interesting side bits, because my, uh, my wife's infectious disease doctor who practiced in an area, or who was trained in uh, residency in an area where this is pretty um, endemic in, uh, at Vanderbilt, and she, she had a great time with me, the fact that I was reading this article. All right, uh, so HGA, our human granulocytic an uh, anaplasmosis, uh, is an infection which basically used to be ehrlichiosis, and now it's becoming increasingly recognized in the United States and several European countries. Uh, it typically comes on like most tick-borne illnesses during summer months and is uh, uh, primarily uh, carried around by exodes ticks, same thing that Lyme disease is. It was first described in 1994 as a human granulocytotropic ehrlichiosis, or HGE, um, but has since been renamed. Um, and it was thought, thought to be a, a close relation to the uh, veterinary ehrlichii. Um, so that epidemiology is it's really in eastern and midwestern states of the United States. Um, same thing, uh, it's kind of uh, ticks uh, that are having a blood meal on, on humans and transmit to humans through uh, the blood meal. Uh, you, apparently, if you are bitten by a, uh, a, a uh, tick, you need to know what type of rodent it jumped off of, because apparently the, the uh, and you need to pay attention to the mice, mice's feet, because it's the white-footed mouse and the dusky-footed wood rat that are the... Uh, uh, reservoir hosts in the, the United States. Um, so uh, the CDC has, uh, since 1994 and, uh, and up until 2002, reported about uh, 2,100 cases of this, and then uh, more than uh, 2,800 cases have been reported to the CDC by the end of 2004. So it sounds like incidence and recognition of this disease is going up. 
has a low face, uh, low case fatality rate of 0.5 to 1%, and uh, really sounds like it's generally difficult to uh, uh, diagnose initially uh, for the most part. Uh, so it sounds like there's actually a fairly um, good amount of it throughout the world, as there's about 14.9% uh, of people in Wisconsin have uh, uh, are seropositive. Uh, for uh, HGA, um, and if you actually look at uh, uh, patients that are positive for uh, Borrelia, um, that it's actually 36% of those patients also seroreact with the HGA antigens. Um, so, and despite the high seroprevalence rate, there is actually um, there is a sing there's one single case of uh, documented transfusion related HGA. Um, but there's only one, so that's good. Um, so the, and the, where this this was interesting. So this was a, where where the, the it actually gets its name from is uh, the granulocytic uh, bacteria because apparently this is one of the very few things that actually chooses to uh, reside in neutrophils. So thus the granulocytic part of the uh, name. So clinical diagnosis, uh, HGA is a clinical syndrome most commonly manifested by nonspecific fever, chills, headache, myalgias, and uh, basically can range from essentially asymptomatic to fatal disease. Um, most patients report uh, exposure to ticks one to two weeks previously, and nearly half of patients require hospitalization and 17% require admit to an ICU. Uh, you can get complications like toxic shock-like syndrome, sepsis, respiratory insufficiency, and then other invasive uh, infections, rhabdo, uh, pancarditis, renal failure, hemorrhage, neurologic disease, and demyelinating polyneuropathy. So it sounds like it's not a lot of fun for the most part. Um, basically, what uh, people present with... Um, is uh, if you look at table one in the article, there's fever in 99 to 100% of patients, headache 61 to 93%, myalgias 40 to 83%, malaise 47 to 93%. And uh, those are felt to be the common uh, things that people present with. On labs, people end up with a, a leukopenia, left shift, thrombocytopenia. You can get uh, hepatic transaminases that are mildly elevated. And uh, actually, my wife was saying that that's one of the big things on the ID boards and things like that. That that's actually that that and a little bit of renal failure are things that you see frequently with HGA uh, that should lead you to uh, specific treatment. Uh, diagnosis can be confirmed by PCR analysis. Um, and then, as far as um, uh, treatment of HGA, uh, my wife told me that this was essentially a uh, doxycycline deficiency uh, state that patients are in. So um, doxycycline is your treatment of choice and uh, in patients where you're considering this. That's about that. <laughs> they recommend seven to ten days. Um, so uh, the approach to a patient with a nonspecific febrile illness, um, really they say uh, clinical exam, routine lab testing uh, can kind of help you out, again, looking for the uh, neutrophils, uh, or the, sorry, the leukopenia, left shift, the transaminase elevation, and that can be helpful. You also want to look for an exposure to ticks. 
apparently there was this is this is one of my favorite studies ever that she told me about. There was a a uh, 1995 New England Journal of Medicine article about Ehrlichia, uh, at, at the time called Ehrlichia, where they ended up correlating, um, in, in uh, Nashville, Vanderbilt uh, researchers correlated the your rate of seroprevalence of uh, being exposed to HGA or Ehrlichia to your golf handicap. <laughs> so, so the worse a golfer you are and the more likely you were to go into the rough, the more likely you were to have Ehrlichia. I have been exposed <laughs> to Ehrlichia. I thought that was a fantastic correlation. Um, and then otherwise, uh, they, they actually also have their their annual internal medicine golf tournament uh, down at Vanderbilt that they call the Ehrlichia Open. <laughs> really high prevalence there. So uh, anyway, it, it, it sounds like it's a, it's kind of a tough disease to... Uh, to diagnose, but if you have someone that has an exposure to a tick with a febrile illness with kind of all of these nonspecific uh, signs and symptoms that seem to go with these tick-borne, early tick-borne illnesses, you get some labs. They've got leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, uh, the CRP elevation, then you should consider starting doxycycline uh, to treat them empirically and consider further testing. So I think that's about it. Yeah, so I think that pretty much sums it up. I think one of the interesting things about this whole group of diseases is you can sometimes be co-infected with more than one. As one of my former fellows used to say, sometimes a dog does have ticks and fleas, and you can have both Lyme disease and ehrlichiosis at the, at the same time. So for our journal club for April, um, that's the Oregon Poison Center, and I guess I couldn't resist saying uh, sleep tight, don't let the big butts bite until uh, next time. And we'll see you uh, then. <laughs>